From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And welcome again to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN Radio. This program is just for you if you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith. We are here to get those questions answered. Uh, Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Delighted to be here with our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you, Padre? Oh, just fine. Glad to hear that. And uh, we're going to open up the phones right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. Or if you wish to send us an email, the address openline at EWTN.com. Be sure that you put uh, the, either the word Thursday or the name Father Brian in the subject line. Again, that's openline at EWTN.com. Big day around the network here uh, because we are celebrating and commemorating the 100th anniversary of the birth of our foundress, the wonderful, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion, Mother Angelica. And of course, we've had a lot of people on the air uh, yesterday and today who knew Mother, who worked with her very closely. Uh, and uh, one of those people is you, Father Brian. You you knew Mother very well, right? Yes, I did, actually. Um, I first met Mother about 1978 or 9, and I had come to Birmingham to do some preaching in the cathedral. Hmm. The Dominican sisters had arranged it for me, uh-huh. And we went around and looked at things. It was on my way back to Rome. We went to Marbury, to the cloister, and she said, Now, Father, y'all, uh, Mother Gabriel, who was the foundress of the uh, sister servant, she said, Now, Father, y'all have to come out and say Mass for this nun. She's going to build a TV station, a Catholic TV station. I thought, oh, this ought to be really interesting. <laughs> So anyway, I went out there, and it was, I think, before the new chapel was built, Mm. because I remember being quite dark and dingy. And what I found amusing and later used to tease Mother with, every sister played an instrument at Mass, Ah. and she used to play the drum. She'd just sit there on this drum and hit it like this. (laughs) And uh, the network had reached the point where they had a slab of concrete in the ground, basically. Uh-huh. And the sisters were going around and trying to get funds and all this business. So she told me she was going to build this Catholic TV station, and I thought, mm, gosh, this, must, this is very interesting, especially in the Bible Belt. Mm. Well, I lost track of, you know, I didn't see her then for a while. And I would have liked to have done something, but, you know, they were very concerned about who did things on the network, and they wanted to be sure it was good. And So about 10 years later, I wrote an article in the Homiletic and Pastor Review on the Mass as a uh, sacrifice and the sacred character of the Mass as heaven on earth. And they asked me to give the 
live show, do the live show. Mm, okay. Well, what I found really fascinating was the woman who programmed it at the time, I think her name was Lori, and so she did notes for me before Mother and I had our discussion. And so she said, oh, you know, she said, Mother's going to love this. She said, I have to tell you, I'm a Methodist. I don't believe in any of it. <laughs> wow. But she said, if I did believe in what you Catholics say you believe in, I'd be on my face on the floor every time I walked in the chapel. Mm. So Mother and I had a very nice discussion. And at the end, she says, well, I think you should do some series. Well, at that time, they had very little programming. So I wound up doing four series in three years. Wow. And I was on like 15 times a week at one point along Gee. the line. And then later, uh, I volunteered sort of my time to teach the Sisters Gregorian chant. Hmm. And you may remember there was a sister named Sister Antoinette. Yes. She, she was the concert mistress for the New Orleans Symphony. And when I walk in the room, she says, I cannot figure out these square notes in this four-line staff to save my soul. <laughs> and I said, oh, sister, you I don't know, know music at all compared to you. You'll be astonished at how easy it is to sight-read four-line staffs and square notes. So sure enough, after a half an hour, she said, you cleared up a 10-year mystery. Well, mother was all for this. And so while she was, we were sitting there, I had a little keyboard, and she says, let's sing this. And I said, Mother, that's much too complicated. You just started, you know. It's a very complicated. Now we're all going to sing this. Turn to page such and such. <laughs> so I said, okay, Mother says we sing this. So <laughs> that's what we did. Wow. And then, uh, you know, viewing her appearance uh, during the Pope's visit where they had the woman play the uh, Christ in the stations, uh, I was very interested to see her reaction and I remember, I believe she asked Deacon Bill, what should I do? I feel like blasting him. And he said, go right ahead. So when Mother blasts you, you know. You're you know, aware of it. You're aware of it. And, you know, I mean, I always say that people used to criticize uh, when they find that I was on the network. Why did you do this? Why does it do that? Why did you do this? And I said, well, I would think you'd be happy with what she is doing. Yes. Because nobody with the amount of resources she has could possibly have produced a 24-hour television station. And then, of course, she got into radio and, and many other things. But uh, I was um, always astonished at how clear she was. And I and did enjoy her with her, in her argument with Cardinal Mahoney, saying, you know, that, uh, you know, I have a, she was very humble. She said, you know, I have a sixth grade or seventh grade education. And I don't read footnotes and documents. I can't, don't know about anybody else. But it was her understanding that the common people, you got to put it where that can be found if sure. you really believe in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so despite the fact that that was a very difficult time, uh, no one could have, made that network go but her uh, and uh, since her father had deserted her she had um, well mixed feelings about that and uh, but she still stuck to her guns and uh, I know she was quite a powerful woman 
I forget what story I heard about her final profession of the poor Claire's, but she was hardly the shy, shrinking poor Claire <laughs> who just, you know, d did nothing and, and expected mother or whoever to do everything. And in fact, she had her mother there with her in the cloister. Mm -hmm. uh, all those things were very interesting. And uh, I think she was a fascinating woman. I did not go to the funeral, uh, though I could have if I'd wanted to, mm -hmm. uh, partially because I, I, it's not me, all these important people who are all trying to, uh, you know, push someone else out to be seen. I was very gratified that they asked Father Joseph to give her homily. Oh, because yes. he'd been with her since the beginning through yeah. many things. And, and there was a funny story about Father Joseph, because remember at one point she decided everybody should go study in Europe. Well, the Iowa boy in Europe, that was just like oil and water. <laughs> so somebody came to visit them, and they asked Father Joseph, what's your favorite site in Rome? And with Father Joseph's dry sense of humor, he said, the airport. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. But anyway, she was a, a, a unique person. And uh, whatever you might think about her personality, no one could have done what this network thing than, than her. And even the bishops with all their power and authority, they couldn't do it. And you remember that uh, she told this story. She used to tell it at the banquets. I witnessed it. She said that um, she had uh, received a call from one of the monsignors at the nunciature, uh -huh. who, well, of course, consider themselves extremely important people. And he told her in the interest of equal time, she had to have the liberal bishops on. And she said, no, I absolutely refuse. So then he said, well, what gives you the right to refuse? And she said, well, I own the station. That's what gives you the right to refuse. <laughs> and so he said to her, well, when you die, we're going to come and take that thing over. And mother actually said this. So I'm not, I hope that, that people aren't going to be scandalized listening to this. Uh -huh. She said, I said to him, I'll blow the damn thing up before I hand it over to you. Wow. <laughs> wow. Mother Angelica, That's pray right. for us. Well, fa thank you so much yes. for your, your memories there, Father. Do appreciate oh, they're that. They're very fond. They're very fond. Yeah. As am I. We miss her every day around here. Uh, phone lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you'd like to ask a question of Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-3986. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Lines are open right now for your questions for Father Brian Mullady at 833-288-EWTN. All lines are open right now, 833-288-3986. Would love to uh, chat with you this afternoon. Hey, uh, do you get wings? If you do, you know what I'm talking about. This is EWTN's weekly e-newsletter. It comes to my email inbox about every Thursday or so. You find out about EWTN radio and TV shows, 
items from our religious catalog, updates from the news department, lots, lots more. Sign up for Wings. It's absolutely free by going to EWTN.com. Click on the word subscribe. That will open up a whole menu of things that you can subscribe to. All you have to do is choose Wings. Uh, Give us your email address, and that's all there is to it. Again, sign up for Wings by going to EWTN.com. Click on subscribe, and you'll figure out what to do from that point. Father, we're going to lead off here with an email from Jay. Jay says, the line in the Our Father, lead us not into temptation. Can you please help me understand this? Is God testing us? Uh, No, God doesn't lead anybody into temptation in a positive sense. What, you, what I think that means is don't withdraw your grace from us mm. because it can make us more easily temp- uh, tempted and more liable to sin. So it's a, actually a positive request to keep uh, grace in your soul. Very good. Jay, thanks for your email. Here's one from Nora. Is there a special rite or blessing performed by a priest for a woman after a miscarriage? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but you have to remember, I, I, I uh, don't work in a parish. Right. And parish priests would deal a lot with things like that. Um, it, it, it used to be that there were, um, after the Old Testament blessings before and after childbirth. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I, I'm not aware of a special blessing. That does not mean there isn't one. Okay. Nora, thanks for your email. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-3986. Here's a question now from James. How does mental illness affect salvation in the case of suicide? Well, that's a very uh, constantly debated question. Hmm. And the idea would be that the person with mental illness, if it affects their will, would not uh, have free use of their faculties, and therefore they wouldn't have free use of their free will, and therefore, though they may be objectively committing a sin, they wouldn't be subjectively guilty for it. And of course, that would allow them to be buried in consecrated ground. But I do think that uh, people should be aware that there are a lot of people who commit suicide that don't do so because they're mentally ill. Uh, a lot of people who commit suicide do so from love. Mm. You know, their lo- love is unrequited. Mm-hmm. It's almost like uh, almost like Romeo and Juliet yeah. or something like that. So it's true there are people who do this without uh, mental well, I suppose you could say uh, not only just reflection, but they do this without knowledge. And remember, full knowledge is one of the requirements for a mortal sin. Mm. So the church today more or less presumes that at least in cases like mental illness, the person didn't know what they were doing, and so they're willing to, to bury them in consecrated ground. Okay. Very good. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for your email, James. Thomas is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Thomas says, how long after someone dies can or does the Catholic Church consider them a saint? Well, everybody's a saint uh, as soon as they go to heaven. So there are people who um, 
as soon as they die, they're judged by Christ. And if they haven't committed anything evil, or they've made up for it in purgatory, then objectively speaking, they go directly to heaven. Now, if you're talking about canonized saints, mm. those are people who we on earth recognize as worthy of our prayers. And it's almost an act of infallibility. How infallible it is has been a subject of quite a lot of uh, speculation and debate. But it, it actually does uh, border on an infallible act that the church recognizes that these people are in heaven and therefore we can pray to them. That's why in the Feast of All Saints, you know, we have different days mm -hmm. where we celebrate a certain saint. But on the Feast of All Saints, we celebrate anyone who may be in heaven, but we don't know. Because only God knows that. Sure, sure. Unless they're canonized by the church, which is a special act. Okay. On the part of the church, just say that we can have a, a, cult, a cult in the sense of uh, um, praying uh, with them and having them pray for us and, and that sort of thing. Very good. Thomas, thanks so much uh, for your question. Glad you're watching us this afternoon on YouTube. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Marilyn, a first-time caller from Cincinnati, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Marilyn, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi. I was calling to ask a question about forgiveness. Um, I understand as Catholic, you know, we are called to forgive 70 times 7. Um, but my question is, if someone harms you and does something, you know, harmful to you, mm -hmm. are you required to just forgive them, even if they haven't approached you or there's not been any acknowledgement of the harm? Or are you just obliged to, um, our, you know, through the Our Father and, and the Pope Our Faith, to forgive them when, you know, they approach you and ask for your forgiveness? Okay. Um, because that's happened to me, and I have a quandary because you, I don't know, it just doesn't, I just wanted to know if there's a difference between when someone approaches you versus am I obligated to forgive someone who's never really even acknowledged but is aware of a, a wrong. Okay. Okay. Uh, I would say um, you're required in both cases to forgive the person because our Lord did. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And uh, so the obligation to forgive, and of course, remember, 70 times, seven times, is a typical uh, Semiticism. It doesn't literally mean that number. It means a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> you know? A lot. A yeah. lot, yes. And uh, forgiveness now means that you wish the person would go to heaven, that you wish they'd change. It doesn't mean if they wronged you, that you have to just submit to them being wrong, wronging you again, uh, because that's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So it, once bitten, twice shy. Yeah. I mean, you know that this person is uh, sometimes, not all the time, of course, but sometimes you know this person is basically out to get you, and you're not going to put yourself in their hands. On the other hand, you do have to forgive what they've done to you. You have to supernaturalize it and see it as Christ sees it. Okay. Uh, Marilyn, is that helpful for you? 
Uh, very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your call from Cincinnati. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Brent sent us an email, Father. He says, I am a lapsed Protestant exploring the Catholic faith. I'm struggling with Catholic teaching on contraception. Can you please help me understand this better? And does the church believe that everybody should have kids all the time? Father? Uh, well, you asked me two questions. Yes, yes. The answer to the second question is no. But it does mean that marriage is, as its purpose, the education of children, and therefore you need to have some children. Uh, as you know, we do accept a form of controlling and regulating birth, which would be according to the woman's period, regulating your sexual activity, according to the woman's period. And nowadays it becomes, it's rather easy to predict, apparently. Mm -hmm. I'm not a woman, so I <laughs> can't say, but I've been told it's temperature, mucus awareness, and the opening of the cervix. If you use all those three criteria, you're pretty um, able to predict when you can control yourself. Because remember, that's what this is about. It's about controlling your appetites and regulating your experience of sexuality according to the way God does. All right, now, back up to the front, first part of the question you mm, asked me. Yes. That's the most difficult. Contraception actually comes from the French Revolution. Uh, it's been around for several hundred years. Societies which practice it, and as you know, I'm sure you're aware that they've been lamenting the fact in the news that Western society is experiencing now negative birth growth in many places. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to make up for that. They've also been lamenting the fact that because of all the hormones in the birth control pills, that these pass into the water supply, they don't dissipate, and men are drinking female hormones. And it's one of the reasons that uh, they don't feel called upon to have uh, children either. The idea uh, in contraception is that we look on other people, that means babies, as objects of use, not subjects of love. Mm. And since the world's, uh, Dr. Malthus in England was the first person to decide that the humane way to do this was to regulate birth, but what he was actually doing was making a baby a means of use to you and what you want instead of accepting it from the hands of a loving creator as a person. So when the Vatican Council discussed this issue, you remember they didn't make a final judgment until a few years later, but they did say it had to be based on two principles because that's what a person is. No person may be an object of use but must be a subject of love. And a person finds themselves only in a gift of themselves to another. And I would say this, uh, the BBC has recently put on YouTube, if you're interested, uh, parts of interviews in Pathé News from the uh, 20th century. And one of the interviews is with Margaret Sanger mm. done in 1947. And she has just stated 
that the solution to the socioeconomic problems of Europe after World War II, now remember this is in 47, yeah, yeah. was nobody should have any children for 10 years. Wow. Wow. There's a sobering thought. Well, appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much uh, for your question there, Brent. Uh, in a moment, we're going to come back and answer your questions on the phone at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Calls are coming in right now at 833-288-EWTN, but there's room for yours, 833-288-3986. Hey, Father, here is an email from uh, Ethan who says, can you please explain the difference between love of self and pride? Yes. Pride is a disordered love of self. Okay. In which a person wants to be the exclusive possessor of a good, all to the uh, as <laughs> as the as to the exclusion uh, to to everybody else. Mm, okay, loving yourself means that you realize that you have been uh, well. You're a result of God's love as a good. Mm. Okay, very good. All right, it is uh, Open Line Thursday here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, it looks like a lot of calls coming in at the moment. We're getting those screened as quickly as we can, 833-288-EWTN. Don wants to know, how can Mary answer everyone's questions? Do Catholics believe she is omnipresent? I wasn't aware the purpose of the Blessed Virgin was to answer all our questions. The purpose of the Blessed Virgin is to be the first member of our church and the most important member, notice I say member, not head, member of our church, and to be a model to us of what it means to believe, and especially in her son, mm -hmm. and also to, to pray for us. Are you hearing that? Uh, we're, we're, we're hearing another language uh, coming in there, Father. Do you yes, we're having a Spanish lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we can get that uh, squared away here in the next couple of minutes here. Here is uh, an interesting question from Leonard. How do you present a case for Catholicism to Protestants who say that all you need is the Bible and Jesus? Oh, oh my goodness. Your, your former program, he answers that question many times. Yeah. Um, well, okay, who wrote the Bible? Jesus didn't write the Bible. He didn't write anything. And so, obviously, you need more than the Bible and Jesus because the church wrote the Bible. Uh, it's true it did so under divine inspiration, very special, miraculous gift. But the church wrote the Bible. And how? who decided what books were in the Bible? Sometimes you talk to Protestants and you have the idea that the King James Version just fell from heaven in Jacobean English. <laughs> you know? uh, the Bible was written, as you remember, over a period of time. First of all, it wasn't written in English, and it was written in the various languages, and the English translation has to correspond to those languages and to the faith of the church. 
So there are various Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, mm -hmm. that are not recognized by the church as inspired. So therefore, they're not part of the Bible. But who decided that? The church decided that. Jesus decided that through the ministry of the church, which he himself established as authorities. Yes, indeed. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Question here from Beth, Father. How uh, does the desire of parents to baptize a child who then passes away in the womb, does this affect the child's salvation? Well, I would say anything affects the child's salvation. We don't know the exact answer to that. Uh, because if they haven't experienced baptism by water, baptism of desire is basically on the part of the person who's being baptized. Okay. And, of course, that's not the parents. Right, right. Okay. Baptism by blood would be martyrdom, but they'd have to have some awareness to do that, too. However, I wouldn't say that it's useless to pray for a child who's died in the womb. Uh, God, in his eternity, has mercy on people, and he may not necessarily oblige himself to uh, following the normal means that he uses, but we know normally it's they who baptize and believe are saved. So the necessity of either water baptism or desire baptism or blood baptism is central to the experience of salvation. Mm, very good. Appreciate that. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Let's go back to the phones now and talk with Bo in Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Bo. What's on your mind today? How's it going? Um, well, I was just wondering if you thought that maybe um, God would have more mercy for, I guess, the sins that are more susceptible per generation. I guess, like, like this generation, I guess, has more sins due to, like, technology and, I mean, say, the generation before might have been, I'm from this generation, so I can't really, I don't really know what people were more susceptible to back in, I mean, the 60s and the 70s. I guess it was free love, and now it's... Yeah, uh, Father, it's not a great phone conver uh, connection there, so uh, what he was basically saying, do you think God might have more mercy to the sins of our era? Each generation seems to have its own problems. Well, look, the greatest mercy that God has on the world, and that's for all times, in all generations, in all cultural contexts, is the Incarnation. Christ taking flesh. That's why it's called a greater mercy than the mercy given to Adam and Eve mm -hmm. in their original creation. So in the sense that we might need mercy more, like we have great more sins, possibly, but you know, former ages weren't all that great either. Yeah. And um, I've just been reading the history of the Thirty Years' War in Germany. Oh, really? In, in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And they thought that was the war to end all wars, and, the, and there were so many people killed and the whole thing. Or, for example, World War One. I. I mean, oh yeah. When you consider that 50 million people died because the Archduke of Austria was assassinated, why? 
yeah. It was useless. And then it was the first time they opened things, the unrestricted submarine warfare to poison gas. Uh, mustard took, gas, yeah. Mustard gas. They took off everything, all restraints whatsoever, to just kill people. And then they, the, the generals were idiots, too, because mm -hmm. they just send all these men across no man's land, and they were constantly machine gunned down or artillery down, mm -hmm. and they seemed to think all they needed was more men. <laughs> wow. More men, that'll yeah. solve the issue. Sure. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, every age has its challenge. Our age, unfortunately, I think, has the challenge of a lot of problems within the church itself. But that's possible, uh, partially because Vatican II was the council in which we sought to define the church and its mission to the modern world. That was its subject. Mm -hmm. So, All right. And Bo, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Maria now in Chesterfield, Missouri, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Maria. What's on your mind today? Yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question concerns simony, or, or simony, uh, and the question is, I was reading uh, an evaluation of conscience book and found out about a sin of simony, and I like going to antique malls, and I oftentimes find rosaries. Uh, one time I found a purported relic of St. Vincent de Paul, and my thought has always been, I'm just going to buy this because I don't think it should be sold. And then with the rosaries, um, anticipating I give them to um, places that are in need of rosaries, mm -hmm. and I did buy the relic. So my question is, am I guilty of a sin of simony? Okay. Okay. Well, first of all, you can't buy the relic. I'm sorry. Uh, what you buy is the setting in which it's made. And uh, one of the reasons the church doesn't bless all the religious goods in a religious article store uh, before they sell them is lest the impression be given that we're selling the blessing. We don't ever sell a blessing. Right. What we do is we sell, uh, we have people pay for whatever the beautiful setting is in which the blessing is done. Uh, concerning things like mass stipends, uh, they are not simony. They correspond to the necessity of the priest being supported by his ministry at the altar. But diocese set limits to them, you know. So they might say, well, a mass stipend is, for most people who can afford it, is $10. Why did they say that? Because we're charging for masses? No. Because you might get some very avaricious priest who might decide <laughs> to tell you you couldn't have a mass said for your relative unless you paid $100 or $200 or $1,000 or something like that. It's, it's to give a basic token because the minister has to live off the altar. Hmm. So remember, the thing about Simon Magus in the Acts of the Apostles was he tried to buy the sacred power from the apostles, thus suggesting that you could sell the power itself. That's what you have to avoid, is that idea. And so for regarding relics, for instance, it used to be the case, at least, I don't know because I haven't lived there in a few years, but there was only one convent in Rome where you could actually buy official relics. And the sisters made these settings, and they supported themselves off of it. But so that people wouldn't have the impression 
that we were selling holy objects. We're not selling holy objects. Right, right. Hope that's, uh, uh, Maria, is that helpful for you? Yes, it's the purchase of the static, and I have no intent of buying any, uh, anything other than the, the good or the, the sure. physical material item. Sure. So uh, I think you've answered my question. You know, well, uh, I, I, well, let me just, you know that sometimes reliquaries are very beautiful. They're covered with jewels yes. and all that business. So, but we're not selling the relic. We're selling the setting. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and Maria, my wife does exactly the same thing. Uh, if she sees a rosary in an antique store or even in a thrift shop, she's going to buy it. Now, we've never run across a relic, per se, but if it's any sort of a holy item, she's going to buy it because she knows that either she will give it a good home or you know, she'll pass it on to somebody who will. Maria, thank you so much uh, for your call today. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. Uh, and then coming up this weekend, it'll be EWTN Bookmark with Doug Keck. That'll be Saturday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. This week, Doug sits down with uh, Jim Toey, to talk about his new book, To Love and Be Loved, A Personal Portrait of Mother Teresa. Should be a wonderful program. Again, that's uh, EWTN Bookmark, Saturday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. We're going to stay in the St. Louis area, go now to Mark, listening on the great Covenant Network. Hello, Mark. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, I'm two minutes away from her. Um, <laughs> what, what I wanted to know is... Um, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's where we were brought up as Catholics. But now you hear a highly favored one, which is correct, and how do we know for sure? Okay. The literal Greek text is kakaratomene, which means literally full of grace. The highly favored daughter comes with the King James Version. Ah. And is a, basically an attempt to Protestants to lessen devotion to Mary. Hmm. Um, now they wouldn't exactly say that always, but and, and you know it, sometimes you can really get the Protestants to realize what's in their scripture that they quote so much. I had a friend; he was an evangelical, very strong evangelical, and uh, so he asked me one day. He says, "What's this Mary bit with you people anyway?" <laughs> and I said, "Bill, uh, you love scripture, right? Oh yeah, literal interpretation, yeah, source of truth, yeah." I said, well, in the scriptures, all it does is say all generations will call me blessed. And that's all we're doing. Yeah. And he laughed looked for a minute and he said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, they, they have these knee-jerk reactions, but they haven't really thought about the thing too mm -hmm. much. Yeah. You know? Understood. And uh, Mark, thanks so much for your call from St. Louis. Appreciate that. Uh, David in Houston called. He couldn't stay on the phone, but he did leave us with a question, Father. He says, how do I avoid getting complacent or moving backwards in my prayer life? Oh, well, that's a very difficult question to answer because every person is different. Mm. But one thing you have to do is take seriously the practice of your religion. So in other words, you have to go to Mass and you have to confess do an examination of conscience, and seek to live a good Christian life. And uh, you're basically setting yourself up, especially if you're trying to live the life of the virtues. That's the foundation for all the rest. It's not the capstone. Charity is, of course, the capstone. Mm -hmm. But it's the foundation for all the rest. 
And uh, I know that there's this whole thing about works and, and Protestantism, and it's true. We don't save ourselves by our works, but it takes two to cooperate with grace, the Holy Spirit and you. And at the end of our lives, we'll be rewarded by our personal cooperation in the grace of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 25, I was hungry and gave me to eat, I was thirsty and gave me to drink. That's all judged by works. And the interesting thing is, again, I asked my evangelical friend, I said, what did you do with that text? He says, oh, well, that's not, that text isn't for Christians. <laughs> wow. It's only for pagans. He said, Christians have the wide throne of judgment. Uh -huh. doesn't matter what they do as long as they accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Hmm. Well, that, it's an opinion, but that isn't what the Scriptures say. Yeah. Appreciate that, and uh, thank you for uh, your question there, David. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. We have just a few more minutes if you want to uh, uh, try to squeeze in another phone call here, and that is uh, that number is 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-3986. Stephen has an interesting question. How do I respond to someone using the refutation of the Donatist heresy to say that an ordained priest is not needed to consecrate the Eucharist. Uh, well, I'm not. I wasn't aware that's what the Donatist heresy taught. My understanding of the Donatist heresy is that they believed that if you apostatized, you had to be rebaptized. Mm. Okay. Um, so I really wouldn't know how to answer your question. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. Well, there you go. And uh, Jim says, does it matter whether some of the Old Testament figures like Moses existed historically or if they're just stories to teach a lesson? Well, it's interesting that uh, you should ask that because Thomas Aquinas wrote a commentary on the book of Job. And it was the first attempt to make a commentary on the literal sense of the book of Job in 1,200 years of Christian history for various reasons. But he asked at the beginning of the book, was Job a historical person? And his answer is, well, it doesn't matter much for the truth of the book whether Job was a historical person or not. Mm. But he's listed with two other people who are historical. Yeah. And so it seems logical that he'd be historical too. Sure. And uh, regarding people like Moses especially, I don't think those are just edifying stories. I mean... That's the center of the Jewish religion, and it's absolutely necessary that you think that Moses was a historical person. Whether you accept all these things that were added in the Apocrypha or whatever, like the things that are in Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, <laughs> uh, that's another issue. But he certainly was a historical person. Quite a movie. And uh, thank you so much uh, for that question. Here is uh, Richard in St. Louis listening on the Great Covenant Network. Richard, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Father. A uh, quick question that's probably got a long answer, but is hell, is hell full or empty? No. Uh, well, hell wouldn't be full, and it wouldn't be empty. <laughs> for one thing, the demons are there. Mm. Uh, so as far as people, we're not sure who's in hell and who might not be. But uh, actually, since the purpose of the world, the reason God created the world is the glorification of God in Christ, 
when the number of the elect is filled up, then the movement of the heavens and the earth will cease. And that's the second, that's the end of time. So since that's true of positive things, it would also be true of negative things. Mm. We don't know how many people will be in hell, but we know if there are, that the number of the damned will be what corresponds also to when God created the world. Uh, and remember, you know, they say many are called, but few are chosen. Now that's a, a Semiticism. What it means literally is many are called, but less are chosen. Mm. So in other words, it could be one less person. Okay. But no one knows. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Of right. course, if you were Dante now, you put all <laughs> the people in hell that were mean to you. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> are you politically disagreed with or uh, you had no respect for or whatever? Uh-huh. Yeah. Appreciate that. Richard, thanks for your call from St. Louis. Let's go to Patrick in Melbourne, Florida listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. I, I was just uh, wondering whether or not there's anything wrong with attending either Mass, whether it's the Norvis Ordo Mass, uh, resulting from Second Vatican Council, or if I were to attend the traditional Catholic Masses, uh, like through the SSPX Society of St. Pius. Okay, now you stack the question with the last <laughs> phrase. Yep, yep. Because you can go to a traditional Mass without going to the Society of St. Pius. That's what the Priest of the of St. Peter is about. So regarding the first part of your question, no, there's nothing wrong with either one. But the SSPX priests, they have very limited relationship with the Holy See. And, you know, both Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict bent over backwards to try to get them to be in full communion with Rome again. And they always had another condition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the Pope would fulfill one, then they'd have another one. And, you know, they've also had a division themselves. Uh, some people will deny any Pope after Pius XII. Some popes, people even deny popes before Pius the Twelfth. Wow! Because of the Holy Week liturgy. Mm. Some people, I mean, they have a division among themselves. As long as the priest saying the traditional mass is in communion with Rome fully, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, Patrick, is that helpful for you? Uh, yes, I believe it is. I, I just, I, I, I thought I understood that. Uh, maybe it was Saint. Uh, I mean, Pope Paul, Pope, uh, Pope Paul II, maybe that allowed a certain number of bishops to be consecrated to do the traditional mass, and I didn't know if those priests right, today that, are still that, doing that. Well, yes, but that's not the SSPX. They're in the Priests of Eternity of St. Peter. Yeah, different organization. Patrick, thanks so much for your call. Here's one uh, from Matt, Father. What is the Catholic view of sexuality, and how does that apply to—I <laughs> know, big question. How does that apply to how same-sex attracted people should live out that sexuality? Well, the Catholic view of sexuality is that the male and female organs are meant to produce babies. Yes, sir. Uh, Little—I call little trinities. Okay. And so living it out means— that uh, that's the normal way you do this. Now, if you happen to have a same-sex attraction, 
you're still like even a, uh, an ordinary normal, I, would, I hate to use the word normal because I know that's a big issue, an ordinary sexually active person, you have to do it chastely, which means you can't have sex just as a person who isn't married, who's heterosexual, has to live it without having sex. They have to be chaste until marriage. So, of course, the same-sex attraction people would never be able to be married in the Catholic way of looking at things. Uh, I realize the Germans disagree with this and a few other people, but fortunately the Catholic Church is not just Germany. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we have to look at the whole church and uh, what uh, we think. Okay. Appreciate that. And here's one final question from Jackie. A very interesting question. Why was Jesus baptized? Oh, now that's an interesting question uh, and very important theologically. Jesus was baptized for several reasons. One of which is that to, it's not for himself. It's for the people who witness it. Hmm. He was a member of the Trinity gives a testimony at that time. Also, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. And he uh, is baptized for the edification and faith of the people watching it occur. Also to approve the rite of baptism, which when he dies on the cross, will the means that we enter into communion with the cross... And there are many, many reasons, but not because of himself. He doesn't need to be baptized himself. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, Father, could you leave us with your blessing, please? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Father, hope you have a wonderful weekend. Uh, thank you for all that you do for EWTN. And I really appreciate uh, your, your personal comments today about uh, knowing, working with Mother Angelica, uh, this has been a very special day for all of us here at EWTN Radio. Tomorrow yes. at the same time, it'll be our very own Vice President for Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, to ask your, your questions all about theology, all about the teachings of the Church. We are here for you 24 hours a day on EWTN. Until next time, I'm Tom Price. You have a wonderful day. See you. God bless. <laughs>